There, there we go. There we are. Good morning and welcome to worship here at Springfield Church of the Brethren. It is Sunday, October the 9th um, here, and we're so glad that all of you who have joined us in person, those who are joining us online as well. I will put in a small um, heads up for those, those uh, I'm going to say mainly who are joining us online today. Um, there will be nothing explicit, but we are talking about adult relationships today. There will be nothing explicit, as I said, but if that's not a topic you want to have with your kids, maybe watch the sermon without them today. We continue working through the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. If you wish to follow along in your hymnal, I mean in your pew Bible, uh, page 54 and page 684 will be our readings, Matthew I'm sorry, Matthew, uh, I, 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 Exodus 20, 14, which simply reads, you shall not commit adultery. And then I'm also going to read from Matthew 5, 27, 30 on uh, page 684 in your pew Bibles. Uh, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if, you, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. Blessed is the word. <laughs> So as some of you probably have figured out, I think I've mentioned this at least once, I am a generation millennial. Surprise. Okay, so generational naming, it feels kind of like a pseudoscience. I mean, it's squishy. We, are, we grow up in our cultures and our families and we are heavily affected by all the experiences of our lives. They shape who we are. But I guess we can also say that when major things happen in every, every year, they affect us differently according to how old we are. So if you were like me, generation millennial, you know, that means, like me, you grew up with fast-changing technology. You grew up with not living under the threat of Cold War, you know, of of nuclear annihilation. That just wasn't a thing for me. But instead, you grew up with, well, homegrown terrorism, things like Columbine and uh, uh, Oklahoma City, with international terrorism, with 9-11. You know, I think right now we may have four generations represented here. We've probably got some of the greatest generation in here, mid-1940s and earlier the Boomers, which is one of our largest. Then there's Gen X. We won't say anything about them because they're Gen X, and that's the whole point, right? Then we got the Millennials. Actually, we, we have Generation Y here as well, or, or the generation, um, generation Z, sorry, Gen, Gen Zers who come after the Millennials. Actually, I don't know what the generation after Gen Z is now because Gen Z is people who came I think they're all in their 20s now. They're all coming up to their 20s. I don't know if they've named the generation after them. Anyway, 
I want to tell you something about being a millennial. There's actually two groups of millennials. There are the digital millennials and there are the analogs. I am an analog. I was born in 1986. And what that means is I grew up as technology. I remember old technology, analog technology, and I grew up as digital technology came popular. It was there long before. You know, CDs, laser discs, those things have been around a while, but they weren't popular. You weren't, you know, you weren't seeing somebody on the street in 1985 for the most part with a cell phone, right? Like if you saw someone with a cell phone in the 80s, the things looked like they came World War II surplus and you knew that person was spending like eight bucks a minute. So I, I remember that. I mean, my, my parents, before they moved, we had a drawer just full of VHSs. We had cassette tapes in the house somewhere. I had the, the cassettes you could record yourself. I used to record myself on cassette. We would make a fake radio program, my brother and I. But my younger brother, Laban, was born in 1990. He's a digital. So for him, he doesn't really remember a lot of that analog stuff. You know, when he started writing papers for high school, he started writing his papers on a computer. When I started writing papers for high school, I wrote on a typewriter. Actually, I wrote it on paper, handed it to my mom, and she wrote it on a typewriter because it took too long for me to do it because I wasn't good at typing yet. Now my daughter can already type. She's only five. Anyway. So I, I, am, I am just of a generation old enough that I remember typewriters. Now it was an electric typewriter, so it wasn't like all mechanical action. If you push the key, it told it to punch a letter into the paper. You know, as opposed to like you push the key and there was lots of mechanical actions that that you know, threw a little arm out and stamped the paper. And it was electronic, you could backspace. And I don't know whether it had like a little tiny white out piece of tape there that it just lighted out or if it actually like scraped the ink off the paper, like scratched the paper. I don't know how it worked. I just knew you could only backspace every once in a while. But you had to backspace almost immediately after you made the mistake. Because if you waited any longer, it was impossible to get everything lined up. And so you would just have to white out by hand and write over it in pen. Don't know how I did that, to be honest. That seems like so much work now, especially as someone who is terrible at proofreading their own work. I need the computer to correct all of my problems. Sometimes it's an issue. I'll actually type the word I want or nearabouts and it'll correct with a different word. And so it won't pop up as a mistake until I read it out loud and still I miss it all the time. So, as that was, that was with a typewriter. Some of you probably, you know, if you went to school, you did everything handwritten. At least with handwritten, you could erase, unless, of course, your teacher made you do it with pen, and then that was its own funness. If we go back generations, all the way back to Paul, the way Paul did it is he talked, he had a secretary. We're pretty sure that Paul never wrote his own letters. He always had a secretary. Most of the letters end with a greeting from his secretary somewhere. 
But anyway, the secretary sat there. He had a piece of wood, a flat wooden board that was covered in wax, and he would scratch the letters into the wax. And then when they were pretty okay with what they had, he would write it onto parchment, and then they would heat up the wax so it would melt flat again, and now you had a fresh sheet. I think that's pretty ingenious, to be honest. But anyway, that's what they would do. But that meant you were hand copying everything. So we're going to jump forward back into the, the what was it, the 1500s, the invention of Gutenberg's movable type printing press. That was the big thing with Gutenberg. Other people made printing presses, he made movable type printing presses, which meant if you wanted to do a book, if you had non-movable type, that meant that you had to carve a piece of wood for every single page. Uh, you've, you've all got book Bibles in front of you. If you open it up and look at just the amount of words on a single page, you'd have to carve every single one of those into a piece of wood and then use that to print and you'd have to have a single piece of wood for every single page. Does that sound like a lot of work? But still, typos happen. And this, this is one of my favorite stories. Because a major one happened in 1631 to a printing of the King James Bible. Now, this became one of those famous Bibles. There's a few famous Bibles out there, you know, the kinds of ones that... You know, any person who, who's really into biblical history would kill to get their hands on, except they wouldn't kill. That was the last commandment. No, they would just love to have their hands on. And this one is called the Wicked Bible. I don't know how many copies are still left of the Wicked Bible. They had two mistakes, two typos, because when you still had movable type, it was a lot of work. You had to put every single word in, proofread it. You had to slide them into place, you had to tap them with hammers, then you had to slide in the next line, and so on and so forth. You had everything, then you had to add in extra pieces to make sure it was nice and tight, tap it then. Then you would put it into place, add ink, one print. Slide that piece of page out, add ink, one print. So you may do the single page for like two or three days until you had enough copies of it for all the Bibles you were going to make. It's a big process still. Well, the printer missed two typos, and I guess they just didn't go back and check it far enough because I think this would have warranted them going back and making the whole page again, even if it would take like two or three days extra work for each one. The funnier one, actually, they're both really funny. The one is in numbers, and I'm not going to say the word they said, but know that the Bible often uses this word to talk about donkeys. And it told about how God would be showing his, it should have said greatness. It said, God will be showing his donkey. <laughs> that was funny and kind of bad. The other one was maybe a worse mistake because it was this commandment right there. Except if you look up there, I will tell you it's missing the middle word. The wicked Bible reads, thou shall commit adultery. There's the one good joke I have for this. I needed to have a good joke because this, I needed a, lightning, a light joke for this sermon. 
Because adultery is not a lot of fun to talk about, is it? I mean, who wants to? You know, so those who have been in committed relationships, there are few things that can hurt you more than to know that your spouse has broken that commitment with you. For some people who have had it happen, it's one of the most damaging things. And I was talking to some other pastors, we were talking about this, and, and he's, they were saying, you know, they had situations in their church where somebody broke that commandment. Somebody broke that commandment with somebody else in the church. And it's devastating. It's not just the family that is damaged, it's the entire group that is damaged. Adultery is something that breaks whole communities. Also, because it deals with that three-letter word I don't want to talk about, but I got to because it's part of this. When we agree to marry one another, we agree that we will keep our sexual relationships between us. And it hurts when someone says they, when someone breaks that trust. Because we are part of our beings, they are sexual beings, and to have someone break that trust, to break that is something that cuts at our very souls, how we, how we think about ourselves. I get why adultery is here. But at the same time, why is adultery here? I mean, yes, it's really damaging to relationships, but it's not like you're killing someone, right? I mean, that was the last one. Thou shalt not kill. Why is adultery here? As we do, we always need to look at the whole. So let's look at the whole. Because you know what? There is a reflection of the first three commandments in the, um, in the uh, I, I, what am I on this week? Is this seven? Fifth, sixth, and seventh. Let's go back to this. First commandment, you shall worship no other gods. Second commandment, you shall not make idols. Third commandment, you shall not, um, you, aye, aye, aye. you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. Um, aye, aye, aye. I'm just blanking out. I had all this memorized, and now I'm just blanking out. Um, sorry. Uh, fourth, fifth, uh, fifth, sixth, seventh, thou shalt, um, ay, 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 thou shalt honor thy mother and father, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery. Okay, these are reflective. The first three and these three are the same commandments reoriented. Okay, so with first commandment was, um, thou shalt worship no other God except me. And then the commandment also that, that's reflective of that on a smaller scale is honor your mother and father. Both of these are orienting us to how our society should work or how the ancient Israelite society should work. It should be focused on God on the macro. Everybody should be looking to God and everything that God does. God is the father of the nation, the leader of the nation. So... On the micro, on the individual, we focus on the mom and the dad. We honor mom and dad. They are the, 
leaders of our small group, of our family. Now, remember, this is focused on adults. So this is not kids about honoring mom and dad. It's about sons and daughters honoring their mother and father. Adults, sons and daughters honoring their moms and dads. So we have our first reflective. We have the macro, we have the micro. Now the macro on the second, thou shall make no idols. You know, you should not worship objects that you make. You should not make the image of God. And we talked about on that Sunday how the images of God were usually based upon whoever the king was at that time. You know, if you were King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, guess what? The, king, uh, the gods of Babylon all looked suspiciously a lot like you. But we don't do that. Israel is not supposed to have a king. They're going to get a king because they're Israel and they, they can't exist without a king because humanity needs that, I guess. At least Israel did. But the point here is that you shouldn't make an image of God that looks like a human image of the king. That, that doesn't work right. There's lots of other reasons with that. I'm not going to go fully back into that. But remembering, looking back at the creation story, here's why I pull out the creation story for today because all Ten Commandments point at the creation story too. Um, that we all are created in the image of God. So we do not create idols because we, we don't create an image of God because God has already created the image of God in the world and it's you and me. We, the collective humanity, we, the individual people, are the images of God on earth. So that's one of the reasons you should not kill because you are killing an image of God. All right, jumping on. The last of the three, opening three was, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord. You shall not use the Lord God's name in vain. Now, this was a complicated one that kind of covered a whole lot of different areas. I don't know if you remember this, but part of it was, you know, yeah, you, you shouldn't, you know, use the Lord's name as a curse. That's, that's generally bad. But a big part of it was, do not use the Lord God's name as an oath if you do not intend to keep it. If you're going to make an oath with God's name, you better keep it. And the other part of it was not misrepresenting God. If you're going to use God's name, do not misuse it. Do not claim things that are not God. Do not use God as an excuse for bad behavior. That, that is breaking the third. And of course today, you shall not commit adultery. So that's the macro. Don't do that on God and on the micro. Don't break the commitments that you make with one another. And here specifically, adultery. So it's reflective. As we have a relationship with God, that we only worship God, that we do not make idols, that we keep the vows we keep. With our brothers and sisters, we honor those who come before us. We do not harm the image of God and we do not break the vows that we have made with one another. Makes sense, right? It's reflective. What happens above in the big macros of the world happens below in the little micros. This is how we apply the love of God to one another. Now this gets complicated. Because when we talk about adultery, we can't talk about the other word, the D word, divorce. 
because that's so often what it ends up. So the Bible actually only has two commandments on divorce, just two. It actually has some other things, but in terms of like why there is divorce, it only has two. The first one is the grounds by which a woman may divorce her husband. And it goes along the lines of this. I'm sorry, I'm not remembering verse markers. It's in numbers, I'm fairly sure. But the first one is this. If your husband marries a second woman, and, and by marrying the second woman, he begins to not treat his first wife very well, then she has grounds for divorce. Essentially, it's a breaking of the contract. When you make a contract of marriage, you promise that you will do X, Y, and Z. And if he brings in a second person and he's no longer fulfilling X, Y, and Z, then he has broken the contract and you are free for divorce. That's the one. Now, notice there's an assumption there that that's already going to happen. The other... I'm trying to remember what the other one is. Oh. The other one is uh, um, if a man divorces his wife and she gets married again to somebody else, but then her second husband either divorces her or dies, then she's not, he is not, the first husband is not allowed to remarry her. That's the other commandment. That's it. That's all the Torah has us to tell on divorce. I'll notice, notice something. There's, there's an assumption in there that adultery is already counted. Adultery is, not, is, is a reason for divorce that's just already automatically in there. And the other reason is the breaking of the contract, the breaking of the commitment that one has made. So I wanted to bring that up when we talk about Jesus, because Jesus will have some things to say. First off, though, we need to talk about where divorce goes from the time of Moses to the time of Jesus. I guess for you guys it would be that way, but anyway. So, over the centuries, Judaism continues to flourish, it continues to think about things, it continues to, to grapple with the problems, and as that happens, we have the rise of rabbinic Judaism. So before this, we have a system in which there is the high priest and everybody has a copy of the law, somehow. You have been told it, you've been taught it, or you may even have a copy of it. And so you were responsible to learn that, and then there were certain applications that the priest handled for you. But as we moved away from temple Judaism, as we moved into the exile, we have the rise of people whose job it is to study it's not even their job. It's what they do. They study the Torah. They study the histories. They study the poetry, the wisdom. And then they argue about it, which is something we Christians still do. I mean, come on, why else would we have all these denominations? We all have the same Bible, more or less. We can't agree on the details. It's okay. They started arguing. And so they come across this idea, what is the purpose of divorce? Now this one guy reads, um, reads the Bible. Um, oh, sorry. He reads the thing, and he goes to that, and it all kind of hinges on that second passage, the one about if a man divorces his wife and then, re, and then she remarries. 
Because this is the only time it talks about when a man can divorce his wife. Well, within that, it says, may divorce for, I'm trying to remember the words in here, basically divorces her for, any, for uh, a displeasure. That's kind of a wonky word. So this one guy looks at that and he reads that and he goes, well, if he marries her for this, let's, let's look back. Where else do we talk about divorce? We talk about divorce if a man is not upholding his end of the bargain and we know adultery is a deal breaker. We assume that adultery is always a deal breaker. So he reads that and he goes, the only grounds for divorce is when the wife breaks the marriage contract either through adultery or through basically not fulfilling the contract. So if, I think a good way to put it in today's words, we make a vow to love one another, right? That's part of the whole, you know, I will love you and sickness and health and poverty and riches and all that jazz. If there's no longer that, the contract is broken. So that is grounds for divorce. That's what he read this as. They are arguing about this, that's how he reads it. And then there's this other guy, and his name you probably heard, which is the reason I can remember it, and his name was Hillel. Have you ever heard of like the Hillel Club? If you've gone to college, or you, I, I know we have one person here who works on the college, you've probably heard of the Hillel Club. It's, the, it's, the, it's a Jewish um, young adults club. Now, Hillel is fabulous in most categories. I think he is one of the most brilliant Jewish scholars of his era. And that was a long time ago. We're talking exile here. Anyway, I don't agree with this one. He looks at displeasure, and he goes, no, 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 no. It's displeasure. It doesn't matter. Whatever the displeasure is. So if your wife burns your dinner, it's grounds for divorce. She's not wearing the right color and makeup, grounds for divorce. If she thinks that the Steelers are a good team, grounds for divorce. I have to say that this year. The Browns are doing well right now, right? Okay. Normally I make fun of them. I don't really care. I grew up, I, I'm, I'm, I don't really care about football anyway. <laughs> anyway. Now guess which one of those became popular. Any guesses? Do you think the first one where it's, you know, the only reason for divorce is that the contract is broken in some way. Do you think that became popular? Or do you think Halil's displeasure won? Which one came popular? Okay, anyone raise your hand if you think it was contract broken. No? No? Okay, displeasure. Anyone? Oh, man, who would think in a society that is dominated by a bunch of men in priestly robes who would think that possibly... Divorcing your wife for any displeasure would be the popular thought. Okay, that is where Jesus is at the point that we are now encountering him. Now, what do you think happens in a society that views women as disposable? They become objects. That's how we need to read Jesus. He is in a society that views women as objects. They are objects towards a goal. Ancient Judaism, up until the Pharisees kind of arrived, do not believe in an afterlife like a heaven like we do today. That is something that was later revealed. They believe 
that salvation, that the paradise that we will go to in the afterlife isn't there. They believe in something called Sheol, which is basically Hades, think, gray, meh, for the rest of life. Well, existence, eternity, whatever. The way, though, you, you achieve salvation is through your children. If you have a lot of children, and they do great things, and they are doing that whole honoring your mother and father thing, that, that is how you achieve true greatness, how you achieve what we would call salvation today. So yeah, women are an ends to a mean, and the mean being greatness through progeny. All right, we all there now? So we come to Matthew 5. Let me pull my Bible back open. Yay, remembering to put my bookmark back. You just heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. We are in a society that views women as objects, then it's fine to look at them and think however you want. This makes a lot more sense now, right? It also goes back to that whole thing about respecting other people because they are the images of God, right? If the woman in front of you, however beautiful she may be, and honestly, we live in a society that has thankfully sort of gotten away from this. And now both men and women view each other as objects. So if you are a woman looking at a good looking guy, I'm sorry, I'm the one up here. You didn't have to laugh at that. Oh, they're out there laughing too. Anyway, if you're looking at a guy and you think it applies to you as well. This is not only one direction. It's the whole idea of objectifying someone else. That's a bad thing. So now you're also kind of breaking the second and the uh, sixth commandment. This is how working through these Torah things are supposed to work. You start drawing these connections. And you go, it may say thou shalt not kill, but it's also talking about objectifying people. See how this works? We talk this out. Anyway, I actually wasn't even going down that road for a second, but I saw an off-ramp I had to take a step on. Anyway, okay. So adultery. Back to adultery. <laughs> All this fun talk about adultery. So, when Jesus comes into this world, he is dealing with the society has gone to that point, And it starts to correct for it. And we find this throughout Paul's writings. Now, Paul, and, and I know we've had this discussion when we read Corinthians and read Romans. There, there's some conversation around Paul and what exactly he thought about women and, and what he thought a woman's place in the church should be, and there's a lot of complicated things. But I always go for the macro. If you have a real question about what a person thinks, go to the macro. Look at the, uh, you know, what's the broad variety of what Paul talks about. Paul ultimately comes down on this level. Women are full partners in the relationship with Christ. Women are equals to men. 
there are so many women he says thank you to because they are major influences on his life and major influences on the church. He doesn't view women as objects. He views them as human. I know this is incredibly rare to think about, that every person's human, right? Okay, anyway. Because ultimately, when it comes down to adultery, adultery is the breaking of those vows, the breaking of the promises. So often throughout Israel's history, when they fall away from the Lord, how do the, how do the prophets describe it? They describe it as adultery. Breaking the promise that you have made to God to be one with God, to live in the covenant. Because they have now moved from viewing God as this great, all-powerful, singular being who has made all things, to viewing God as just one more object you get to worship. The same as Baal, Horus, Zeus, whoever. It's objectifying God, and it's breaking the vows. Just as when we cheat either in our heart, in our mind, or in physical body from our spouse, we have objectified them. We have made them nothing more than an ends to a means. Whether that's their paycheck, whether that's the family, or the status, or whatever physical pleasure you have. Ultimately, while it says you shall not commit adultery, it's about two real things. Keeping those promises you have made and respecting the other people in your lives as human beings. Now that can go out in a lot of different ways. As I said, we work these out. These are simple commandments that are meant to pinpoint on one thing, but they're always meant to expand out. Just as you love the Lord with God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, it expands out into all of these. So each of these commandments expand out. So do not commit adultery means do not commit adultery. It means treat your spouse with love and respect as a full partner. It means treat your children as, as human beings, as people who deserve love and affection. And when they reach the age are able to make decisions as full partners in life. Treat your parents the same way. Treat your friends the same way. Treat the stranger on the streets as a human being and not a little eye candy. Treat God. Treat God as one who is living in full as you are, but ever greater than you are. Respect God and fulfill the promises you have made. Whether that promise is, as Maya put it, a pinky promise, whether it's the commitment that we wear on the finger, whether it is a contract that you sign, as long as there's no reason that the contract, whatever it is, should be broken, and sometimes it happens, 
You know, the Bible says divorce is bad, but you know what the Bible also says? Divorce happens. Paul accepts that divorce happens. Jesus, in fact, the one time that Jesus said that there should not be divorce, it was in direct confrontation with Hillel's reading, and he is only commenting on the Hillel reading. He doesn't comment on the other part, on the part that talks about, you know, if a man um, begins to neglect his wife or abuse her and that she's allowed to leave then. He doesn't comment on that. He only comments on this idea that we can dismiss our spouse because they displeasure us. If you are in a relationship where you can dismiss your spouse because they displeasure you, then you didn't go to enough marital counseling before you got married. I guess that's couple counseling at that point. Just wanted to make that point out there because I am not going to ever say it's good to be in a relationship that is harmful. Just not going to say it. I've known too many people who've been stuck in that. If you're in that kind of relationship, if counseling's not going to work, God does not say you have to stay in that relationship. That's just not in there. In fact, it says the opposite. So, just want to put that out there. So long as a contract should not be broken, whether, as I said, it's a ring on paper or a pinky promise, then try your best to keep it. And if you're thinking about making such a contract, whether, again, by paper, ring, or pinky promise, consider whether you can keep it or not. And if you don't think you can keep it, then maybe consider not signing it. There's no reason to sign something in any level that means that you are going to eventually demean another person or you are going to be demeaned by them. So, the moral of the story, don't commit adultery. View other people as what they are. Images of God. Children of divine. Beloved of the, of the Son. And those filled with the Spirit of God. That's the real commandment in there. Good luck. <laughs> I'm sure you're not going to all break that one, just offhand. I know most of you pretty well, at least well enough. But still, as you go out this week, of course the challenge is always there to see every single person as human, which surprisingly is hard for us. Because in the end, many of us, all of us, it's part of being human, are kind of selfish. We can think, Oh, it's obvious I'm here, I hear, I feel, I think, I touch, I feel gravity pulling upon my body, I am angry, happy, sad, whatever. Ultimately, we know we exist, and sometimes it's easy for our brains to believe other people exist. That's always a struggle, and often a part of my sermons. But I'm going to give you another challenge this week. As we kind of touched upon this, every commandment, everything we learn has many multiple meanings that need to be stretched out because we humans ultimately struggle to do so. All of these commandments are one, come out of one idea that we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, strength. So as you encounter the words of God, especially here in the Torah, 
Think about all the ways they stretch out ever more to fulfill this idea of loving God perfectly. In the first reflection of loving upwards, the macro, the micro is loving one another. So how do we do that? Go out, see every person is human. Go out and see how God's love, which you feel and you feel back towards God, is truly applied to all peoples. Amen.